are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, tonight, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, and we're looking this evening at chapter 10. And verses 1 through 7, you're going to find this on page 1033 of the Pew Bible. That's Revelation 10, and we're going to read together verses 1 through 7. Revelation 10, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of God. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, and that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Well, as with the seven seals, so with the seven trumpets, there is an interlude between the sixth and the seventh in the series. Of course, as you know, in the Bible, the number seven represents fullness, completeness. And when the seventh is reached, whether it's a seal or a trumpet, then all is complete. And the interlude distinguishes the seventh as the most important. It is indeed something extremely special. But before the trumpet sounds, we are introduced to another mighty angel in verse 1. It's not an evil spirit, apparently, in part because it comes down from heaven. He descends from the realm of God, comes from the throne of splendor. And if nothing more was said of him than a mighty angel, we could leave it at that. There would be no reason to suspect that he was anything more than a superior creature. Indeed, the angels are strong and powerful and mighty beings, and they're ministering spirits to the heirs of salvation. But there are clear indications of deity, I believe, here. So this angel must be far more than a mere superior creature. Consider the symbols used to describe the angel, which are uniquely divine. First of all, we're told that he is wrapped in a cloud, and clouds are the clothes and the chariots of God himself. 
You remember how Yahweh descended to Mount Sinai and he appeared over the mercy seat in a thick cloud. When Israel was delivered, the Lord went before them in a pillar of cloud. And when God's glory filled the tabernacle, we're told in the Old Testament that a cloud covered the tent of meeting. Therefore, Scripture shows obviously that clouds are associated with deity. Nowhere in the Bible do we find a mere angel arrayed with clouds. They represent God's transcendence, His majesty, His unapproachable holiness. And this suggests then that he whom John saw wrapped in a cloud is a divine being. In fact, earlier in Revelation 1, John said, Behold, Christ is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Secondly, he has a rainbow over his head, which is the sign of the ancient covenant that God made with the entire creation. Genesis 9 says, I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So here we find that the bow is Yahweh's sign of mercy in the midst of judgment. A promise to maintain history until the very end. And the rainbow of God also serves as part of the glory of his throne. Perhaps you remember when Ezekiel saw this, beholding the Lord enthroned in the heavenly brightness. And he says in chapter 1, like the appearance of the bow that is in the clouds, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Earlier in this same book, in chapter 4, John described the heavenly throne with these words. He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow. Nowhere else in the Bible do we find anybody surrounded by a rainbow. It belongs to God. It's his sign in the clouds. It's a symbol of deity. Third, his face was like the sun. And this is the same description of Jesus when he was transfigured before the disciples. Matthew 17, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And then on the Damascus road, Saul beheld Jesus as brighter than the sun. Earlier in Revelation, in chapter 1, John described the display of Christ's divine splendor in these words, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. In other words, his radiant face was the center of his glory, likened to the noonday sun. And if you've ever looked at the sun, you know how blinding that can be. Its brightness cannot be measured, its brilliance cannot be endured, and that's why when John saw him in this fashion, he fell at his feet as though dead. It's a symbolic representation of unveiled majesty and resplendent glory. What else can we conclude, therefore, than this is the radiance of divine glory? Next, his legs were like pillars of fire, the same lower limbs that John saw earlier again in chapter 1, where he describes his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. So here we find his legs were like fine brass melted and glowing in a superheated furnace. And you ask what furnace that is? It's the furnace of affliction. Christ bore the full weight of God's wrath. Beaten and bloody legs, trotting the Via Dolorosa, the way of grief, the way of sorrows, 
the path to the cross. They led him to drink the very dregs of the cup of staggering handed to him by his own father. And with those same blazing legs glowing like fire, he will come to execute judgment. W. Guild says this, and I quote, his feet as pillars of fire to tread down and consume his enemies, serve as a just and dreadful terror to his foes, but as a sweet and singular comfort to his elect ones who are here trod upon and cruelly used. Indeed, was it not with these pillars that God defended Israel against the Egyptians? Then in verse 3, we're told that his loud voice was like a lion roaring, which is often used for the voice of God. Joel 3 says, The Lord roars from Zion, and the heavens and the earth quake. And so this colossal figure doesn't shriek from fear, but he shouts with power. It is the deafening sound of the dreadful roar from the lion of the tribe of Judah. And as the Most High, what he's doing here is heralding judgment with a majestic, awesome shout. 1 Thessalonians 4, I think, concurs. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Indeed, this voice is so diffusive in all places, from any direction, heard by everyone. You cannot miss it. So powerful and overwhelming is this voice that nothing can stand in opposition to it. Indeed, remember Psalm 29? We've sung it often. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, flashes forth flames of fire, shakes the wilderness. So all these descriptions are symbolic portrayals, I believe, of the Lord Jesus Christ. They distinguish him as one who is above all the angels. Indeed, he is Messiah the Prince. But then why call him an angel? That's a normal question. Why not just tell, him, tell us that he's the Christ? Well, the Greek word angel can refer either to one's nature or one's office. And in this case, it's not, reveal, it's not referring to the nature, an angel. It's referring to the office. Because you see, an equally legitimate translation would be another mighty messenger coming down from heaven. And in Revelation, Jesus appears as a lamb and a lion and a warrior. So why can't he appear as a messenger? In fact, he is the great prophet of God, the greatest of all heavenly messengers. And in chapter 1, John says, Grace to you from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. He's worthy of worship. And so we ascribe to him the glory due his name. Well, the text goes on in verse 2. It tells us his right foot is on the sea and his left foot is on the land. And his legs look like these columns that are so large that his foot is far out into the ocean. You can picture the Atlantic serving as a wading pool through which he strides with ease. And to set one's foot on any place was an act of expressing one's possession. Deuteronomy 11, Moses says to Israel, Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Possession. 
The messenger's stance signifies his sovereignty, therefore, over both land and sea. And this is something incompatible with mere angels, but it certainly befits the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, Paul says in Ephesians 1, God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So Jesus Christ is the one who rules supreme over everything on dry land. And he's the sovereign potentate of all the creatures that dwell on the sea, as we saw this morning with the great fish in Jonah. And as so often in the Psalms, David stirs up the praise of Yahweh by saying, The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. The oceans are his. Over the flood he reigns. The Red Sea simply opened for Israel. The dry land is his, whether fertile field or sandy waste, it all belongs to him. He's sovereign. And therefore, he is to be greatly praised by everyone. The earth is his and the fullness thereof, and he has incontestable dominion. And the position of his legs, they signify universal authority over everything under his feet. And I believe this implies the mighty messenger's words are of universal significance. What he says is of universal significance. This will concern everyone everywhere, whether on land or at sea. And therefore the psalmist says in 49, Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. The truths that come from this figure ought to fill our souls with awe because he's a great king. And that's why Jesus said so often and to so many, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's attend to what he says and let's meditate on it and let's draw comfort from it as believers in Christ. And what he says is so important that in response, the seven thunders sounded their agreement. The definite article, the, signifies specific thunders, those that are well known to the readership. And of course, in Psalm 29, if you were to look there, you'd find seven times that thunder is described as the voice of the Lord. It's over the waters. It's filled with power. It's full of majesty. It breaks cedars. It moves mountains. It flashes flames and shakes the wilderness and induces birth and strips the forest bare. If you look at Jewish tradition, we find there that God's voice of thunder at Sinai was called seven thunders. And through history, God's majestic power thunders as he preserves and he governs all things. So it is no wonder that here we encounter the thunder of God once again. It's not the first time in Revelation that we have been confronted with it. Chapter 4, verse 5, for example, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Thunder is an expression of his majesty and his judgment, and both are confirmed. And we don't know what the seven thunders said, but it implies that Christ is heralding judgment. Whatever they said, John was prohibited from writing down their words. 
He had received a revelation that he was not permitted to pass on to us. These were inexpressible things, things not lawful for him to repeat. Much like when Paul was caught up to the third heaven and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So exalted were the revelations. And apparently the things of which the seven thunders spoke were of the same type. And I think it's best for us to trust the wisdom of God who withholds no good thing from those who love him. We do know that Christ called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion, and this he did so that he could arrest the tension of people everywhere. He's about to announce God's final judgment and issue a summons to everyone. Psalm 98 says he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And ponder with me how comforting this would have been to the early church. They were relatively a small band of disciples sprinkled in the ancient world. And the church at that time was seemingly insignificant in its size and its influence. Society despised them. They were of no account in the eyes of the world. But their king, in, in whom is vested all authority in heaven and on earth, thunders. And with right hand raised, he testifies to the veracity of God's purpose. He swore by him who lives forever and ever, the creator, that there would be no more delay. Literally, it says time will be no longer. That's what it says. God's plan for history is complete. And it implies that between the other trumpets and the seventh trumpet, there will be a delay. It would be a long delay beyond what is expected, and will be tempted to lose heart. Because as Peter says, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You know, Scripture nowhere tells us explicitly the time of Christ's second coming. Jesus says concerning that day and hour, no one knows. And all you and I know is that we should be looking to and be ready for his arrival. It could be any time. He said that thousands of years ago. And here we see him verifying by solemn oath that history will be concluded. Joseph Seiss puts it this way, with clouds for his garments and the rainbow for his crown, with his face shining as the sun and his feet glowing like pillars of fire, he stretches up his right hand into the sky and swears, swears by the eternal, that the time shall come when there shall be no more delay. And thus, as the faithful witness, Jesus announces the consummation. But then somebody asks me, why an oath? Is not God's word sufficient? Any reason to doubt him? Why would he swear an oath? Well, it has nothing to do with God's truthfulness and everything to do with man's weakness. Because you and I are finite and fallen and fallible creatures, we're given to doubt, aren't we? And thus, with infinite condescension, the Lord seeks to reassure those of us who are weak of his truth. In fact, he does this each and every week in the administration of the Lord's Supper because it says when God desired to show more convincingly 
to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, his word and his oath, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So here we find as the mediator, Christ himself confirming his purpose by an oath because he wants to assure us. And by this means, he gives Christians strong encouragement to hold fast. The day will come with certainty when the powers of darkness are overthrown and Antichrist is finished. And this is, in fact, the substance of what Christ affirmed by the raising of his hand. Verse 7, in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. You know something? There is a great deal in this life that's difficult to understand. Mysterious. Wickedness often seems to prevail while righteousness is eclipsed. Evil men prosper while so-called good men suffer. And that's one of the reasons why the preacher said everything is vanity. But there will be a final reckoning when everything will be made right. All our questions will be answered. All of our confusion will be dispelled. All of our ignorance will be solved. Evil will be dealt with. Sin will be eradicated. Wickedness will be judged. And it will be the culmination of redemptive history. The great day of the Lord. And I want you to notice how John points out that the mystery of God will be fulfilled. And that mystery is, as clarified elsewhere, the salvation of both Jew and Gentile. For centuries, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, the ministry of the gospel was confined largely to the nation of Israel. How wonderful and mysterious is the conversion of the Jews and the fullness of the Gentiles. And at the consummation, all the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is, as John says, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. The Greek is euangelion, or literally evangelism. Just as he evangelized with the gospel, the redemption of man will be fulfilled. The ultimate destruction of evil will be carried out and complete. And the fruition of the messianic kingdom will be visible to everyone. It'll be the consummation of all things, the end of history. And of course, the early Christians expected this to happen at any given moment. But in the wisdom of God, it was delayed to give room for repentance, you and me. If their expectation had been fulfilled, we wouldn't be here. Every generation since then has thought perhaps this will be the time. And each generation came and each generation left without ushering in the promised consummation. Only God knows the day and the hour. What we're told to do is watch and pray. Watch and pray. And Jesus, as the faithful witness, confirms everything promised will be fulfilled. While there is delay, we know for certain that the end will come. God's promises, the prophet's predictions, Christ's parables, the apostles' teaching, all of it certifies the end. And we have been given so much inspired testimony that we have certainty that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed, 
And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And it will be the ultimate realization of everything promised in the covenant of grace. So, in closing, let's stand ready. Let's stand ready to welcome and rejoice in the return of our Savior. Don't lose heart while he tarries. Don't give up even if evil seems to prosper. Sin and wickedness and evil might flourish for a season, but it will be destroyed. And don't let the delay of judgment or the interval of time shake your confidence in the truth of Christ. There are many, perhaps people that you know, who will not believe Christ until he comes. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They laugh at the very thought or mention of our Lord's second coming. And yet Jesus himself often repeated his promise to come a second time. He says, and I quote, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And so all that he now does has reference to his second advent at the end of the world. He will come to take us home. He'll gather us up in our resurrected bodies. He calls us home privately at death, and he gathers us one by one in time. But at the last day, he'll assemble us publicly and together as one body. So don't lose heart. The promise of the consummation will be fulfilled. And all who trust in Christ will be fully and forever freed from sin and misery. And as believers, you and I will be filled, think of it, with inconceivable joys. And will be made perfectly holy and happy in both body and soul. As certain as Christ is king, the great day of consummation will come. Revelation 1 verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this remarkable heavenly messenger whom we believe is Jesus Christ himself. We thank you that he is so gracious and so infinitely condescending that he would even swear an oath to give us assurance. We thank you that we can trust him and you, and we pray for the Spirit's help that he might sustain us and preserve us and enable us to hold fast to the hope which is given to us in Christ. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.